Yes, I'm technically challenged, so thank you very much. <laughs> also, hair raising is the word. You can see I lost it all. Um, Dr. Van Furen, thank you so much for extending the invitation and providing this lovely setting uh, for tonight's discussion. Really appreciate this. And uh, for getting such subversive elements on my left and right here to join me. And talking about subversive elements, there are many in this audience uh, who have been through a great deal of subversion over the years. Uh, and I'm glad to see them here with me, and with us rather. So, the book, Armed and Dangerous, um, it was written whilst I was on the run from the Special Branch, largely written then, um, in 1990, just after Operation Vula was uh, exposed, and I'd been in the country with Mag Maharaj and Sviwe and Yanda, who had come in way before me, was to set up an underground network of leadership. There had been an underground built up over the years, but the leaders were lacking. I came in very late, in fact, in 1990. Um, with the unveiling of the ANC, Maharaj and I were indemnified, although a certain F.W. de Klerk didn't know we were already in the country, and the ANC didn't want them to know that, so they told us to skedaddle, to get out and then to come back as very good people. Uh, here we are, ready to join in the uh, process of negotiation. Whilst that happened, Sipiwi and Yanda and others who were still underground were discovered and with a lot of information, and it suddenly struck the clerk that we had been in before, as though that was a great sin. It was a crazy notion of his that we were upsetting the entire negotiation process, because if anything, the ANC and Communist Party and the MK underground were underground for ages. 1950 on the Communist Party and 1960 on the PAC and the ANC. But the special branch who were trying to up the ante and, you know, create that tension of the time. And you can remember what was taking place with the IFP and the hit squads, um, the so-called third force, the killings taking place in 1990. Um, he tried to make a that the communists were out to upset the apple cart of negotiations and were actually acting against Mandela. It was all totally false. But anyway, the upshot of it was that um, Maharaj was arrested with Nyanda and others, and I managed to evade arrest and was underground, not for the first time in my life with the police hunting me. And this brings me to the title, Armed and Dangerous. Um, it's really a tongue-in-cheek title because it's the special branch who referred to me as Armed and Dangerous. And they, they had photographs on the television said to the, the good uh, law-abiding people of this country, don't go near him and his colleagues, they're armed and dangerous. Um, and uh, we managed to remain in hiding for another year, in which time the uh, Mandela had stressed to the clerk that there could be no negotiations whilst we were 
on the run, we had to be uh, indemnified again. So it was quite a year for me, 1990 into 1991, and I had a lot of time on my hands, and I had just begun, having been born BBC, born before computers, <laughs> I learned how to use a computer in that year, and the thing that I began to do was to write this book. <coughs> Uh, and that's when the book was written. Uh, I completed it the following year, and it was published in the first case by Heinemann, an English publisher, and came out in 1993. In 1999, Jonathan Ball, the publisher here, uh, wanted to bring it out under South African title, and he took the rights with my agreement from Heinemann and brought out a 1999 second edition in which he asked me to add chapters. So I added to that the period of our great election of 94, which changed things in so much and uh, became the Deputy Minister of Defence. So with the second edition was added about five chapters dealing with that period. The book did very well all along. And by 2004, the same Jonathan Bull wanted me to update it to 2004. And he came out with a third edition. It's quite unusual coming out <coughs> with these editions. Um, and prevailed on me to write about the period from 99 to 2004 in which I was the minister now in that period of water and forestry, which was the best time of my life in government actually, because that was um, delivering water to our people, and especially in the millions of rural people who hadn't had water before. And that was the third edition. And that was it. Until my new publisher, Jakana, down the road, and they're selling copies here tonight. Um, they had published a book of mine about a specific period in our history, just 1960 to 63 in Durban, in which my late wife had been arrested and uh, detained and dealt with very brutally and subsequently escaped from custody. So that was a book called The Unlikely Secret Agent about Eleanor. And they did very well with that book. So they felt they would now like to also acquire this particular book with its long lifespan now and a fourth edition. And uh, I said to them, okay, this time round, I am not adding any chapters, which they wanted me to. They wanted me to update it to um, Polakwani and to the period when I became Minister of Intelligence. And I thought about it and I said, you know, that's going to be another book entirely. And I'll write that much later. It's very different. And it's got to really look at um, some very serious <coughs> questions about government in, governance in this country and what had happened to the ANC. But I did say that I would write an introduction for this book uh, for them. And that's what's been added introduction which um, deals with what the book is really about and I'll come back to that in a minute 
But um, having dealt with that in the introduction, I then asked the question, was the struggle really worthwhile? The sacrifices, which is what all the young people, so-called born frees ask, as well as older people like some of us here tonight. And I deal with that in the introduction. Um, what about the sacrifices? Was it worthwhile, given some of the problems and deep problems, complex <coughs> problems, uh, systemic, economic, and of course, corruption at personal levels, etc. Uh, I wrote that introduction for this book. And that introduction's created quite a controversy because it's, it is rather controversial. And I'm sure we'll hear more about this from the two with me on the panel. Um, let me, in the little time left, um, for me, I don't want to hold all the time. You said 20 to 30 minutes, and I'm going to stick. And I'll stick to 20. So, in, in say about the five minutes, to say that what I would say this book is about. First of all, it's a memoir, so it's written from a personal point of view about an individual's life story, and we see many of these testaments coming out now. A struggle record from a whole range of people um, and that's very good because it helps us all to understand what the struggle was about and with my book as with the others it's what brings an individual into a struggle <coughs> and in South Africa what were those conditions so we come from very different backgrounds I happen to come from a lower class Jewish white background in the Oval. And I would think that the book dealing with a young kid who was really just sports loving, um, growing up in the Oval of the 40s and into the 50s, what on earth could have led me into embracing a struggle for the liberation of all our people? And of course, primarily in the first place, our African oppressed majority and all those who were suffering under apartheid. And there are many whites, including in the room here tonight, Louis Kalinikos uh, over here, is someone I met aged 20, and I'm not asking your age, Louis, I think we're probably about the same age. Um, and Louis was in an organization called the Congress of Democrats, and I met her then. So I met her long before the old professor here <laughs> ever met his wife. Um, I deal with that period of schooling and what it was like as a kid. And then with me, the fact that there was a rebellious streak. And the book goes into the reasons for that. Um, I looked further afield as actually a young teenager, especially into my trip. Uh, at our fellow countrymen and women and became friendly across the colour line. And the kind of people I became friendly with would be the kind of, uh, of, of our comrades and friends here tonight with the darker pigmentation uh, who were writing or playing music <laughs> or poetry working for Golden City Post and Drum Magazine, etc. And I became involved in that uh, milieu. And Sharpful then occurred, and that made me look for the ANC, 
and become a full-time activist over the next few years, joining MK. And the book really is about encontrances where why it came into being, why somebody like myself and hundreds and thousands of other activists would join, why they would sacrifice. It's not just about me. It's a memoir and it's personal, but it's about an individual's role in a struggle for national liberation. So it's about all the wonderful people I became involved with over the years who sacrificed their liberty and their very lives and suffered immensely and the betrayals and exile and how we said never say die after the Mandela, Susulu, Gomenbeki arrests and Bram Fisher to just keep going from exile linked in with the country and uh, the people inside and how we then set up our training camps in places like Angola and our underground structures from Mozambique and Swaziland, the Suta Botswana through to Zimbabwe, Zambia, and right through to, to London, um, where we operated as well, Dr. Dadu, Joe Slovo, and so many others, all under the leadership of Oliver Tamba. So the book takes in that entire sweep of history um, and those many years, 30 years or so, in which um, the flag of the movement was kept flying, people involved were those of immense integrity, nobody served because they were looking for money, wealth, fame, fortune. This isn't what you received. It was a very, very different factor to what people perhaps these days are looking for. Um, the book deals with the four pillars of struggle. So there's the mass political, there's MK, there's the underground, and there's international solidarity. And it makes very clear that the struggle is won by the people of South Africa um, doing incredibly courageous things, sung and unsung heroes. And it doesn't go into the mass movement inside the country. That must be somebody else's memoir and research, etc. I was outside. But um, I make it clear that the MK actions were really, although we didn't realize this at times, we came to understand it more later in the struggle, that it wasn't the Cuban, Vietnamese type armed struggle where we would come marching down Elof Street and Commissioner Street with our AK-47s and our Che Guevara Berets, which is exactly what I thought would be the case when we were training in the Soviet Union in 1964. That's how we envisaged it. But it was really that MK acted in terms of armed propaganda actions, inspiring our people, showing that there was always something there. And I would say that this helped to activate the morale and the commitment of many people in the country who formed wonderful organizations, trade unions, the UDF, etc. And really it's together those four elements of struggle that in the end bring about the uh, overthrow of apartheid. I want to just end on this point that we living, well let me make this the penultimate point, okay. Um, we live at a time now where 
people aren't so clear about what that struggle was about, which is why it's important that these memoirs are written. Um, and there are a number of academics, conservative academics, race relations, stable, and others, who would have it that MK was an entire failure. Um, and that's because we didn't win by an armed insurrection. And they, they're looking for a straw man there. They're creating something that this was not about. We might have, might have over time, and indeed in the Communist Party, we had an insurrectionary theory and a path to power, but there was always the question that negotiations could in fact come about. The point is that MK played its role, and I've used the term uh, in the psychological sense. It inspired the black majority. It put great fright and fear in the minds of those who ruled the country, who were absolutely terrified that armed actions would, um, would link in, in terms of a, an incredible synergy with the mass struggle and that the Red Revolution would come. So it, it played a, a huge role, but it was a secondary role. So I wanted to make that point and to end with the introduction, which perhaps because of the time factor during question time, uh, it might come up. But certainly in relation to that question, was the sacrifice worthwhile? I would say absolutely. We achieved the unthinkable, and that was we smashed white supremacy for once and for all. We overthrew apartheid. We created a democracy in our country. And, from, and there have been great achievements in our country since 1994. Now, that doesn't mean that we've achieved the utopia of our dreams. It doesn't mean that with the political equality which we all have, it doesn't matter who you are, your vote weighs the same. So we've got political equality, and not just in relation to the vote, in relation to all aspects of the political sphere. Certainly, when it comes to economic and social equality, there's a long way to go, and every country faces that. But it's 20 years in now, and I've, I've mentioned things that we all know and people speak about, the unemployment and the corruption and so on. And within this, I ask where we went wrong. And uh, I basically feel that in the very important concessions that needed to be made, by Mandela, and it's not just him, it's all of us who were involved in the movement as a collective leadership. It wasn't just him or Tavo and Becky. Everybody played their role and could debate and agree or not. Um, but the concessions, and I say they were very necessary, it spared us from a bloody civil war. And the reconciliation which is meant to go with that is important. But I am of the view that we were far too lenient in the economic sphere and that we should have been much tougher. And at a time when not just our own capitalist ruling class, 
that international capital was in a situation where I don't believe they would have intervened if South Africa had at that stage gone for some form of social public ownership of the hearts of the economy and the mines and so on. This was well before Malema and company that we could have gone for um, a, a huge wealth tax. We could have demanded of the mining houses that after their century of plunder and exploitation, they needed a restitution that uh, was needed in which they should have paid huge amounts into the public fiscus so that we would have been in a better position to help the poor of our land. And we made a, so many other concessions in terms of a more so-called liberal open uh, market with lack of real control. I'm not saying nationalization of everything, but um, the strategic path in which a government of the people in terms of the Freedom Charter should have been ensuring greater control of the economy. And without that having happened, as is still the case to this day, I think so many of our ills have emerged, including the roughness of corruption and of the Kantler Gate and Gupta Gate and whatever gates you get to call it. But uh, this is just to give you then um, a, doc, a overview that you asked me to do and to then open myself up to interrogation uh, from those with me and from you in the audience as well. So, Siabongo Kapulu, thanks very much. everything that I was going to talk about. So sorry if I'm going to repeat uh, some of the issues that have already been covered. But just to say that it's really a, a great pleasure and a privilege to have been asked to comment on this fourth edition of um, Castro's autobiography, Armed and Dangerous. Um, it was one of the first books that I read as I started to become interested in South African history and politics um, as an undergraduate student at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And uh, I, I like to think that the book probably influenced my decision to do a PhD on the South African liber liberation movement, so I am especially honored. Um, so the book was first published in 1993 uh, as South Africa was coming out of a very difficult and violent transition period and uh, on the eve of the first democratic elections. And um, you know, while autobiography and biography have uh, over the last 20 years really uh, become a quite a, a separate mode of, uh, of historical writing, within the field of liberation history at the time that the book first came out. Um, it was really seminal. There weren't that many um, biographies uh, and autobiographies in particular around at the time. Um, so it probably did encourage or start this trend in, in uh, autobiographical writing that's become very important in, in South African struggle history. It's also unique in the sense that uh, the book has gone through, as we've heard, uh, three additional ed ed editions, um, which 
uh, have taken the narrative past the 1994 moment, which again is something that very few, especially autobiographical works, have done, um, having rather chosen to deal with the struggle against apartheid, but very few works that I can think of have ventured into the sort of more murky waters of, uh, of the transition and, and of the ANC in government. Um, so uh, this latest edition has a new introduction which poses a, a number of really self-critical questions about uh, the, the failings and the increasing dysfunctions of the ruling party and, and really does so with a frankness um, and honesty that, you know, without recusing himself or responsibility for decisions that were taken. And uh, I think this is really a testament to the ability of uh, the leadership of the ANC and the SACP um, to question themselves and to open up for debate and to assess circumstances and, and to learn from mistakes in order to be able to overcome difficult moments throughout the history of the liberation movement, as for example happened during the Morogoro Conference of 1969. And argue, arguably this tradition of self-criticism, um, which um, uh, um, has been a characteristic of communists uh, all over the world, and in Italy where I come from, we call this practice autocritica. Um, um, arguably this tradition um, has become increasingly eroded in, re in recent years, and obviously the big question remains as to whether uh, the ANC will be able to emerge from the present state of decay. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the book and what it covers. So it starts with Rani's rapid politicization and involvement in the, libera in the liberation movement, which really uh, was prompted by the Sharpeville shootings and uh, after which really uh, he found he catapulted himself into the thick of it, so to speak. And uh, at the time, um, he was based in, in Durban, um, and uh, he was part of the discussions uh, amongst the ANC and its allies in what was then the Congress Alliance around the decision to embark on on um, struggle through a sabotage campaign. And um, so, so it. The book provides an interesting account of the underground network that was operating in Durban, which I think, um, um, has, has, you know, uh, hasn't really been looked at in, in many of the accounts of the struggle, which have tended to focus on Johannesburg as the main center of events, um, and, and, to a less, uh, and to a lesser extent on Cape Town. And it was, it was in Durban that Rani uh, met Eleanor, his, his late wife, um, who was one of the, or perhaps the, the first uh, um, MK, uh, female MK operative involved in sabotage actions in the Durban area. And uh, Ronnie has written a, a very uh, moving uh, book about the story of her arrest and detention and her escape from prison, which she managed to pull off basically on her own. Uh, and that was published two years ago. Um, in 1963, uh, Rani and Eleanor, who were both on the run from the police, escaped via Botswana and arrived in Tanzania, where the ANC, under the leadership of Ali Tambo, had set up 
um, its external headquarters in Dar es Salaam at the time. And while Eleanor worked for uh, the AMC office in Dar, Rani uh, went off to Odessa, a, a city on the Black Sea in the Soviet Union, to undergo military training. And this was with a generation of MK recruits um, that, that left the country in the 1960s and became known in the movement as the Mugwenya, and they were really the pioneers of the armed struggle. And after coming back from the Soviet Union, he spent some time in a camp in Kongwa that was in the central region of uh, Tanzania. And um, uh, after that, uh, uh, Ronnie and Eleanor married and, and soon after established a home in London where their children were born and where, I should add, uh, Ronnie became uh, an Arsenal supporter for the better or the worse. <laughs> We've got spurs at the back of the room. Um, and uh, it seems that Eleanor in London, it was Eleanor who was really the breadwinner uh, of a family and this seems also to have been the case in many other families uh, in exile, especially those based in Western countries. And while Ronnie worked in the smallest ACP office in Gooch Street with people like Yusuf Dadu and Joe Slovo. And from here they, um, they uh, raised funds for the ANC external mission and MK, but also started to recruit and to train uh, a number of uh, people to become secret operatives for the liberation movement and some of it were young South Africans, among them Ahmed Timur, um, Raymond Sattner, and, and David Rutkin. Um, but also they included foreign volunteers from Communist Party and from the left of British politics, really. And their stories have uh, been um, recently recorded in a book called London Recruits, which, which came, came out last year. Um, following the Soweto uprising, which really swelled the ranks of MK as uh, black youths um, left the country in droves and, and joined the AMC in exile, uh, Ronnie was uh, deployed first to the GDR, uh, East Germany, and then to Angola in the new camps there to uh, give political classes to this new generation of, of uh, recruits. Um, and after that he was uh, again deployed to the eastern front lines, so first in Mozambique and then after the Nkomati Accord to, to Swaziland. And it, I think it's Rani's memories of uh, his experience in the camps that, um, that is perhaps my favorite part of the book. Um, <laughs> Well, the, the, the scholarship on, on MK has to a large extent failed to capture what life in the camps was like, like except for talking about the discontent and the crisis and the mutinies. So much so that there is a danger that the history of the ANC in exile is going to be written as one of constant crisis. Rani provides an, interesting, an, in, an extremely human account of everyday life in the camps and he talks about the kind of ideological debates that were going on amongst cadres, the kind of food they ate, what they liked to eat and didn't like to eat, how the camp structure was organized, 
how uh, well the daily activities were from drilling exercises to political classes to football matches and so on. And uh, Rami really has an incredible memory for names and uh, for people, not just of those in the leadership. And the book paints a series of very moving portraits of those who made up the ranks of MK, who they were, what drove them to join the struggle against apartheid, what their dreams were, what their frustrations were in exile. And too many of the names that Rani um, mentions in the book, people that he trained and worked with, died in action or as a result of um, uh, uh, cross-border attacks by the army or, or the secret police. And while fears of infiltration could sometimes escalate into imagined conspiracies and uh, the detention of suspects did lead in some cases to abuses, um, the, long, the long list of names of fallen comrades in the book is really a powerful reminder of just how real and painful the, con the consequences of infiltration were. It is also a reminder that uh, while geopolitical um, uh, obstacles and, and the, the might, the military might of uh, the, the apartheid regime uh, prevented MK from waging a conventional uh, guerrilla war. Um, the armed struggle was not just a case of armed propaganda, um, as some of the literature has suggested. And, and for 30 years, the whole of Southern Africa, the whole of the region was involved in a war which had huge human and political costs. And Ronnie's spoken about some of the impact of the escalation of armed activity at the psychological level, but also I wanted to mention the military defeat of the South Africans at the hands of the Cubans in Angola in 1988, which really uh, paved the way for Namibia's independence and in turn made opened the way for the negotiated, the negotiated transi transition in South Africa. And this war um, was dragged out by the National Party until the very bitter end um, and the political violence of the 1990s really is testament to this. Uh, so that by trying to weaken the ANC, the National Party could seek a negotiated solution that was on its own terms. Sure. <laughs> And one last time. And uh, Ron has already spoken of his return to South Africa on, and of having to go underground again um, after uh, the exposition of Operation Bula, uh, which really uh, was being used by the National Party to discredit the integrity of the ANC in the, in the negotiation process. Um, I'll just make so the just to conclude that the, the book really makes for a very gripping read and, and its uh, wittiness and self-humor often made me laugh. There's a part where Ronnie talks about hearing about the movement with capital M for the first time and he thought at the time that they were referring to the Royal Ballet Company uh, that was touring from Britain at the time. And then there are some very funny jokes about the Cubans in Angola, but uh, you'll have to read the book to, to get the punchline. Um, and the book is dedicated to the born freeze, uh, and I especially encourage them to read it. In spite of the disillusion, disillusionment with the present, which is evident from the introduction, 
I hope that uh, Rani's revolutionary life will be an inspiration for this and many more generations to come to continue to struggle for a more just and better future. Right. Thank you, uh, Professor von Führen, uh, colleagues, comrades, friends. Uh, <coughs> I'm very envious of um, of Ronnie Castrols, not because he got to know my wife before I did, <laughs> but because he, he's written such a an exciting and, and gripping book. Uh, and, and it's actually now in its fourth edition. And the books that I write, uh, my wife tells me, are the kind of books that once you put them down, you can't pick them up again. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I'm, I'm, um, I'm a little bit uh, on the back foot here, uh, uh, Ronnie. But Armed and Dangerous is a, a rich contribution to the growing body of autobiographical writing on the South African struggle. And Ariane has actually outlined it very eloquently, uh, how that's emerged. I mean, simply put, the, the, these books that have emerged uh, can be divided into two. There are those who celebrate the anti-apartheid struggle and those who are hostile to it. Uh, I think you mentioned the Institute of Race Relations, uh, uh, Paul Trevila's Inside Quantra. But they're two very different kinds of, of, of literature. However, <clears throat> there is a third type uh, that is emerging and the latest edition, that is the fourth edition of Armed and Dangerous, is uh, the latest example of this third type, where long-standing and highly respected activists begin to question the ANC achievements in the post-apartheid period. Jay Naidus, who was the, of course, the General Secretary of Kasatu, his autobiography, Struggle for Justice, uh, is one example. Uh, Ronnie Castle's fourth edition, and I'm going to focus on the fourth edition uh, of Armed and Dangerous, is another example. They have been called post power radicals. Post power radicals. They are men who have exemplary records as anti-apartheid activists. They've experienced a period in power as cabinet ministers, for example, in the case of Jay Naidu and Ronnie, and have become increasingly critical of the ANC after they have left power. That is the ANC after 1994. Now, in preparing this uh, evening's uh, discussion, I, I first read the 1993 edition of Armed and Dangerous, which I, I confess I hadn't read before. I hadn't done my homework, I'm sure. I found it very readable. 
And I really love the account of your early life and your political awakening and, of course, your decision to join Kunti Wesizwe, one of the first whites to do so. What is especially interesting, and what I was looking for, Ronnie, in the first edition, were um, moments of doubt or questioning in the first edition. They are not prominent, but they do, I think, reading it, uh, they reveal your integrity and your questioning mind. You express doubts about the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, as we call it. You have these wonderful accounts of debates with Ruth First and your discussions. You reflect on the difference between freedom fighters and terrorists. And you mentioned the abuses in the camps in Angola. But, but these reflections in the first edition are rather muted. And the unequivocal critique of the post-ANC government, the post-1994 ANC government, in the fourth edition, came to me as a surprise. And I, I'd like to, in the time I have, Madam Chair, I'd like to comment on the critique contained in the introduction and raise some questions around its implications. I think Ariane has given a wonderful account of, of the book and, and, and a very thoughtful one. Uh, essentially what Ronnie argues is that the ANC lost its soul in the early 90s to corporate capital and became trapped in neoliberalism, selling out its people in a Faustian bargain. He argues this unequivocally in the introduction. And he focused to illustrate this Faustian bargain. To illustrate it, he focuses on the International Monetary Fund's loan in 1993 to uh, what was to become the new government, which he believes captures the Faustian bargain with corporate capital. And he suggests, and he touched on it this, this evening, uh, that the ANC could have moved in a more progressive direction without these kinds of concessions to capital, to international capital. And he, he ends up by calling for a revitalization of the ANC. And I quote, the ANC's soul needs to be restored. Its traditional values and culture of service and sacrifice needs to be reinstated. Now, I think it's very, uh, very powerfully argued. But what, what I would like to, to, to address is that, and, and my uh, observation, Ronnie, is why does the ANC make the shift? Is it simply greed 
as Raymond Sutner seems to suggest in his article in the Mail and Guardian. What was and what's your explanation for this right-wing, rightward shift? I would argue that, and I'm putting it to you as a, a proposition, that the cause of the ANC's rightward shift was the fact that it had demobilized, or there was a demobilization of the internal democratic movement, the United Democratic Front, the marginalization of Kasatu. And underlying this demobilization of the internal democratic movement, which you, you, you suggested this in, in a way. You kind of, I thought you were stealing my thunder, but you, you haven't, I don't think. I don't think you quite have. But you, that underlying this demobilization of the internal struggle, which you said was such a central factor, if it was such a central factor, why was it demobilized? And I think underlying that is a particular theory of transition that's dominant in political science. And it says if you want to go from an authoritarian government to a democratic government, you've got to establish an elite pact. You've got to bring the moderates together and isolate the right wing and isolate the left wing. That's how you build a consensus and that's how you move forward. Now, I think that that model is flawed. I think it distorts the left. I think that what you had in South Africa is a social, social movements that were using their power in strategic ways and shaped this transition, shaped the constitution, shaped the research and development program, the RDP, which was the central political platform of the ANC. And let, let me illustrate, just if I may, Madam Chair, just to kind of bring on my point. The, you know, E.H. Carr, the English historian, says that what you see depends on which side of the mountain you stand. Ronnie, you stood in Lusaka. I stood in Johannesburg. So looking at it from Johannesburg, a survey of Kasatu, Kasatu shop stewards in 1991, which I conducted, I asked them, who do you want to represent you in the transition? 70% said they should be represented at Kadesa, which was about to happen. This is 1993, 20 years ago, exactly. 70% said they want to be represented in the political negotiations by Kasatu, not by the ANC, not by the South African Communist Party. I mean, it's 21% ANC, 9%. The overwhelming majority. Indeed, the CEC of Kasatu at the time resolved that they would either be represented by Kasatu or not at all. So looking at it from you know, my side of the mountain, I see the shift taking place much earlier. 
And why did Kasaja take this independent position? Why were they arguing that they wanted to be represented? The reason is, and you've actually made the point yourself, Ronnie, the reason is that they played the central role, a constructive role, in creating the conditions for the transition. They had developed an effective strategy that combined mass mobilization with negotiations. That, that was how the transition way before Cadessa, 1990, the a minute, employers, unions, negotiating how to take the country forward. Okay, that's fine, thank you. You're very generous. Um, and I think they were the force behind the, the reconstruction development program. Now, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to, to bend the stick too far, because I, I'm not for one minute uh, suggesting that uh, sanctions, uh, armed struggle, so were not important. Uh, 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 what I am, what I would argue is that this was the driving democratic grassroots force that was driving a socio-economic agenda, not just a political one. That's why they wanted to be represented by Kasaju, because they wanted to ensure that we wouldn't follow the post-colonial path, where the moment you came to power, you established this predatory elite and you crushed the labor movement. That's why they argued for an independent value. 